Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are watching Deconstructive Criticism. I am Aaron Flam. Today we're talking to the man that has the hardest job in the world, defending the state of Israel in Western media. Government spokesperson, Elon Levy. This conversation was recorded in downtown Tel Aviv, so you can hear the hubbub of the city below us in the conversation. If you're severely autistic when it comes to sound, I apologize for this, but suggest you listen to the substance of his words rather than the quality of the sound. Elon Levy is a British Israeli. He has a degree from Oxford, but moved to Israel in 2014 to enlist in the Israeli military during the 2014 Gaza war. He has also worked as the chief news anchor at the Israel Broadcasting Authority for Israeli public television and the international news network I-24 News as a news anchor, commentator and investigative journalist. In 2021, he became the international media advisor at the office of the President of Israel for Israel's President. He has also translated 10 books from Hebrew to English for an international audience. After the 2023 Hamas-led attack on Israel, he became an official Israeli government spokesman and one of Israel's most internationally recognized faces in the war, especially famous for his raised eyebrows in an interview on Sky News. Join us in a conversation about Israel's image abroad, other countries' opinion about how to react to Hamas atrocities, and the lunacy of the two-state solution. And now, Mr. Elon Levy. Enjoy. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism, Mr. Here. Yeah, Mr. Elon Levy. I, I first have some personal questions for mm -hmm. you. Normally, I, uh, I let the guests uh, define themselves. So, who are you in your own words? <laughs> I have, in the strangest and most bizarre circumstances, become a spokesman for the Israeli government. I wasn't before October 7th, but what happened, happened. And I'm very proud that in Israel, everyone dropped everything and immediately did whatever they could because they understood that only one thing mattered. Total victory over Hamas bringing down the terror regime in Gaza and bringing back the hostages. And so I found myself within a week putting on a suit and tie, going on television as a spokesman for the Israeli government. And here we are, nearly 300 interviews later. Yes, but I bet they didn't just pick anyone off the street. You must have... No, I had been the uh, President Herzog's foreign media spokesman for the first two years of his presidency. Before that, I was a television news anchor here in Israel as well, two uh, English-speaking stations. So... I had a background in television, in political comms as well. And so when the massacre happened and people immediately found themselves scrambling to do whatever they could as civilians to contribute to the effort, some people were cooking food for soldiers, others were driving down supplies to displaced families. And I said, well, I know how to give interviews. So I'll give interviews on behalf of my country. Right, um, because you're a British Israeli. Yes, I was born in Britain uh, to Israeli parents. I grew up there, studied in the UK. At the age of 23, after finishing my master's, I wanted to come and serve in the Israeli military. It was just at the end of Operation Protective Edge, the war with Hamas in Gaza in 2014. Uh, and I've been here ever since. It's been nearly 10 years. So you studied at Oxford and Cambridge. Correct. And it was a PPE uh, That's right. degree. Very good guess. Uh, so uh, philosophy... I have a good guess or you've done your research. Uh, <laughs> philosophy, politics and economics. Yes. Uh, which is sort of an elite education in Britain. As far as Oxford goes, yes. Yes. And so uh, can I just quickly ask you, uh, favorite philosopher, fav favorite politician and favorite economist? Oh, wow. Those are big questions. Uh, favorite philosopher would have to be John Rawls. Uh, when I was at university, I, in fact, uh, wrote a musical about John Rawls. So he has a very special place in my heart. Uh, favorite uh Politician is a challenging question to ask me as a government spokesman. So let's look <laughs> at it. Uh, let's look at it historically. I think um, I admire um, Margaret Thatcher's toughness. 
conviction, I think, whatever one thinks of her specific policies, and we can have a debate ad nauseum and ad infinitum about her policies. She had grit. She had the courage of her convictions. And that is uh, certainly a set of traits that I need to call on in order to do the job that I'm doing now. You're a rather thankless fireman. She wouldn't have appreciated you liking wars, I think. Uh, no, but uh, we, I think we would have had a number of uh, disagreements, but one had to admire our ironclad uh, grid. And as for favourite economist, uh, why don't we go for Adam Smith? Oh, okay. That's uh, a good choice. I would have picked Milton Friedman for you. Also a good choice. All right. Also a good choice. You see a very eclectic range. Yes. So... <laughs> Funny. Uh, so uh, you're, um, um, you went back in 2014 at the end of Protective Edge. Mm-hmm. How did that war affect you? The 2014 war was shocking for two reasons. First of all, it was the longest Gaza war that Israel had fought. At that uh, point. Yes. By now, this war has far exceeded it in length. Uh nearly threefold. But at the time, it was the longest war that Israel had fought in Gaza, with rockets reaching further than they had reached before, came against the backdrop of the brutal abduction and murder of three Israeli teenagers. Um, And in many ways, it was a war that is a prelude for what we are experiencing now on a much larger scale. But also, it was a war that profoundly shook the Jewish diaspora around the world because of the wave of anti-Semitism that it triggered. Not only protests against Israel, as always, whenever Israel finds itself in conflict, it triggers a, an anti-Semitic backlash. And that really uh, wriggled out of the woodwork in 2014, and meant that when I left the United Kingdom and came to Israel, I certainly didn't feel that I was running away from anything. Far from it. But I certainly left the UK with a nasty taste in my mouth from the experience of the uh, great anti-Semitic awakening of 2014. It's interesting to hear you say that, because my next question was, in fact, uh, at Oxford and Cambridge, did you notice any anti-Semitism while you were there? No. Not really. I think the only anti-Semitic incident I experienced was with someone who had no connection to the university. In 2013, I agreed to take part in a debate with George Galloway, who was at the time a former British member of parliament, known for his virulently anti-Israel positions, his support for the most barbaric despots and terrorists, who agreed to uh, participate in a one-on-one debate with me. And you were at the time 23? 21. 21. He arrived late, delivered his speech. I got up, started speaking. And at one point he latched onto the word we that I used and said, you said we, are you Israeli? I said, yes. I want Israeli parents. He said, I've been misled. I don't debate with Israelis. He got up, marched out of the room. And that was a national incident. It made national headlines. There was even a cartoon in the Times about it. At the time, people were profoundly shocked. And I experienced that very much as an anti-Semitic incident. If I had stood it and said, uh, yes, I'm an Israeli Arab, I don't think you would have got up and marched out. It was very clear uh, what the basis was for his walkout. But apart from that, no. And the atmosphere on campus was very different 10 years ago. I remember leading the campaign against efforts to affiliate the Oxford Student Union with the anti-Israel boycott movement. And we defeated it by a margin of six or seven to one. Right. That was still possible back in 2013. I don't think it would be possible now. The atmosphere on campus has uh, soured beyond recognition with the way, unfortunately, that the most violent manifestations of the Palestinian cause have become a uh, trendy, fashionable cause. Why do you think that is? I think it's part of an outgrowth of a much wider ideology that has taken hold 
of elite institutions around the world. One that divides the world inexorably into oppressors and oppressed, victims and victimizers, and sees no room for a people like the Jews who were oppressed, who were victims, and managed to seize themselves by the bootstraps and free themselves and achieve liberation. Because in that worldview, if you are either a victim or you're a victimizer, once you manage to escape victim status, you become by default a victimizer. Now, of course, there is a deeply, profoundly anti-Semitic undercurrent to all of this. Because anti-Semitism throughout history has always been an attempt by failing societies to deflect blame and criticism from their own failures and avoid responsibility. And so the Jews have always been held up as the opposite of however these societies regard themselves. There is now a movement that, for reasons right or wrong, let's not get into this, uh, sees the original sin of the modern world as being colonialism. So what do student activists in the UK, Canada, Australia, the United States do in order to avoid taking responsibility and leading by example? If you really think colonialism is the original sin, perhaps you want to dissolve Canada or dissolve uh, the United States or Australia. Of course you don't. They scapegoat Israel. They scapegoat Israel. They take the story of a persecuted people fleeing uh, oppression, who claim their sovereign dignity and independence in their ancestral homeland, and choose to cast that within the narrative of colonialism, and then sacrifice Israel, I think, as a way of, of trying to expiate their own white guilt um, for what they regard as the original sin of the modern world. How much do you think Christianity plays a role in this? Because you mentioned original sin, so I wanted to ask. I don't think it's possible to disconnect the moment we are having now from the much broader intellectual framework of the Western world, one that has been secularized, yes, but not disconnected from ideas that have been immensely powerful throughout Western history. I think that the, uh, if I look at Ireland, for example, where Israel faces really vicious hatred in subquarters. It's impossible to disconnect that from the legacy of centuries of Catholic anti-Semitism. It's not like these societies ever experienced a profound reckoning with that past and, oh, now this is something else. I think one has to take a look more broadly and connect the dots. By the way, I find this as well when people come and say, ha-ha, look how many countries... Uh, have condemned Israel. The international community is against Israel. I say there has never been a point in history in which the world has stood by the Jewish people's right to physically defend themselves. So if you're telling me that much of the world is ganging up on Israel, I don't think that's evidence of anything because that's simply the, the default mode. It's also argumentum ad populum. Right. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, uh, I don't know how to say it in English, actually. I only know... Well, let's stick to Latin. It's a logical fallacy. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, the Everyone can be wrong. Exactly. And, yes. and Jewish history has always been about the courage to look around the rest of the world and say, this is crazy. This is madness. And Jewish history is one long train of the rest of the world being wrong. When the Jewish people faced persecution, whether it was the Spanish Inquisition or wherever... Yes, sometimes, sometimes the world was wrong. Sometimes there was an attempt to scapegoat the Jews. Now scapegoat Israel as the national instantiation of the Jews as a way to deflect responsibility and blame instead of doing the serious, tough work of introspection and addressing their own problems. You mentioned the three Israeli teenagers that got kidnapped uh, to Gaza in uh, 2014, which... They weren't kidnapped to Gaza. They were, they were abducted in, in the West Bank. Okay. But you went into Gaza. The, uh, they were abducted in the summer of 2014 by Hamas terrorists in the West Bank. Uh, Israel responded with a very firm crackdown on uh, the Hamas terror infrastructure. And that set in sequence a chain of events that led to an escalation of rocket fire from the Gaza Strip. Um, these arenas are all 
connected. But suddenly looking back 10 years, thinking that there was a war that began with the brutal abduction and murder of three teenagers um, by Hamas. And now we are dealing with 253 people who were abducted on October 7th. In addition to four hostages who have been held in Gaza since 2014, uh, we see history repeating itself now on a much larger scale. Um, Part of the reason that we are having this war now is that previous rounds of conflict ended with pressure to effectively call a stalemate and leave Hamas standing. And with each round, Israel tried to degrade Hamas's military capabilities. But Hamas kept building and building and building its military power, diverting international aid, doing this right under the noses of the UN agencies that turn a blind eye to its militarization of hospitals, to its construction of a tunnel network, one and a half times longer than the London Underground, with tunnel shafts poking out in hospitals and UN schools. Previous rounds of conflict didn't end with international support for Israel to bring down Hamas and finish the job. They left Hamas standing. And that is why Israel now finds itself committed this time to finishing the job with Hamas. So that it can't attack us as it did on October 7th with with what, let remind your listeners, was the deadliest terror attack in world history after 9-11. In a single day, as many people were murdered as the entire North Tower on 9-11. In a much smaller country. In a much, much smaller country, definitely. If you look at it on a per capita basis, it is off the charts. But also so it can't attack us as it has over the previous 20 years of rocket fire. We in Israel have come to take it for granted that it's simply part of the scenery that every once in a while a terrorist group in possession of neighboring territory can fire rockets at our cities and at our villages whenever it wants. And that's something we just have to tolerate and put up with because that's part of living in the Middle East and these people are always going to hate us. And now with this war, this is Israel saying, enough is enough. We're not going back to October 7th. And we're going to, we're going to stop putting up with uh, Hamas's abuse of this territory as one large launch pad of rockets against uh, Israeli towns where we're in Tel Aviv. We would have a minute and a half to run for shelter. If you were in a village much closer to Gaza, you would have a matter of seconds. Sometimes the mortar shell would hit before you even hear the siren. So we're saying enough is enough. Um, this isn't a war we wanted. It's not a war we started. It's not a war we expected. But it is a war that we have to win. It is a war that we have to win in order to restore personal security for us, for our citizens. Yes, but there is also a conflict of interest here because you want to save the hostages as well. Uh, and uh, I know there's a part of Israeli society who um, are really adamant about prioritizing the hostages, uh, which is a very human instinct, I think. Um, and it's also a way to preserve your own humanity. It's, you know, uh, life before military victory. But uh, wouldn't that sort of priority lead to more kidnappings, more attempts in the future? We see the twin goals of this war, destroying Hamas and bringing back the hostages, as going hand in hand rather than contradicting each other. Because the hostages are only going to be released through unrelenting military pressure. Either because we will physically go in and get them out, as we did just the other week when we rescued two hostages, or because Hamas will want, in exchange for giving back hostages, a pause in the fighting to catch its breath. That was how we got the first 105 hostages out at the end of November, because for every 10 hostages who were released, Hamas agreed to a one-day pause in the fighting. You'd also, you also had to give up a lot of terrorists in your own Exactly. Prisons. There were three, three convicted prisoners for uh, violent offenders for every one hostage. Uh, there were the eyebrows. That famous moment, yes. yes. But, what, but what Hamas really wanted was a pause uh, in the fighting. Now, the question of what price Israel should pay to bring back the hostages shows you that Israel has no good choices at the moment. We have only excruciating moral dilemmas. Because Hamas wants an exchange for the release of the hostages, the release of thousands of convicted terrorists with blood on their hands and terrorist masterminds. And you can say if we were, God forbid, to um, 
the hostages were to remain in Hamas captivity. That sends a message to all citizens in the country that terrorists can come, invade you, and you're on your own. But the alternative could be to release terrorists who will reoffend. Because Sinwar, for example, the Hamas leader in Gaza, was released as part of a, a hostage exchange. We got soldier Gilad Shalit back from Gaza in exchange released a thousand convicted terrorists, including Sinwar, who was now responsible for the October 7 massacre. Um, so these are excruciating moral dilemmas that the country's leadership has to confront. Well, isn't that the point? I mean, Gilad Shalit was apparently worth a thousand terrorists plus a thousand. That was the price that the government paid at the time to and, get back one soldier. Yes, and didn't that uh, uh, give uh, incentive to Hamas to do what they did on October 7th? And that is exactly why you will hear many voices that say we have to continue fighting to bring the hostages back. But if we were to release terrorists, we only increase their appetite. And next time, they'll demand not only the release of hostages. In fact, this time, if you read the, uh, what has been reported of Hamas's delusional demands to release the hostages, they were demanding other concessions that had nothing to do with Gaza and nothing to do with terrorists in jails. You, you allow yourself to be blackmailed. Um, but that is why the country is now insisting on a strategy of putting unrelenting military pressure on Hamas so that they know that the Israeli army can operate in the heart of their strongholds, in the middle of what they thought were their most impregnable fortresses, and that if they want a pause in the fighting, they have to release the hostages. But what this government has been clear it will not accept is Hamas's terms of capitulation, that Hamas wants, in exchange for giving the hostages back, an end to the war that will see it still on its feet when it tells us it wants to perpetrate another October 7 massacre again and again. Because we have a responsibility not only to bring the hostages home, but to make sure they can't be abducted from the same beds the following morning. Yeah. Uh, and to think not only about how we rescue the hostages who are being starved and tortured and executed and raped in the Hamas terror dungeons right now, but how we stop that terror organization from ever perpetrating a... Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. ...processes like this in the future. So let's talk a bit about the other existential threats that uh, Israel faces. You have Hezbollah in the north now, and uh, that seems to be heating up. Yes. Uh, where do you see that going? The prospect of war with Hezbollah is a real and terrifying possibility. Terrifying because it has much larger firepower than Hamas, far more missiles, longer range, precision guided, much bigger warheads, along a much longer border, and in a country that is connected to Syria and through there to the rest of the Middle East, it's not isolated like Gaza. And real because Hezbollah decided to join this war on October 8th on the side of Hamas, has been firing rockets at northern Israel, 
and has displaced around 100,000 Israelis who have been stuck at hotels and guest houses across the country for four months now. And they can't go back to their homes until that threat is lifted. Not only the shelling of their homes and the rocket fire, but the threat that they could be abducted into Lebanon. And then you understand they would be in Iran by the afternoon. So we have been clear. Hezbollah must back off or we will push it away because we cannot reconcile ourselves to the ongoing displacement of 100,000 people who cannot return because of the shelling of their homes. Resolution 1701, UN Security Council resolution, ended the 2006 war with Lebanon. It was supposed to push Hezbollah north of the Litani River and put in place UN peacekeeping forces to monitor the demilitarization of southern Lebanon. It never happened. No one insisted on its enforcement. Are you Hezbollah, telling me the UN didn't do its job? Clearly not, because Hezbollah has been firing rockets from mere meters away from UNIFIL positions. It treats the resolution as a dish rag and essentially UNIFIL soldiers as human shields. And by the way, the disaster in Lebanon is a reminder of why the war in Gaza must end with the total elimination of the Hamas military machine. And it cannot end with a terror organization in control of territory and vague international promises that it won't be allowed to use that territory for attacks because that failed in Lebanon. It doesn't work. The peacekeeping force did not have teeth in order to stop Hezbollah from taking over southern Lebanon. All it could do was issue reports and even that. And it's important to connect the dots between Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthis because these are not separate militias. They are all proxies of the Iranian regime. The Hamas terror regime in Gaza, the Houthi pirate regime that has been firing at international shipping, Hezbollah that has been launching attacks at Israel from the north. These are all extensions of Iran's strategy in league with the Muslim Brotherhood around the world to encircle Israel and tighten the noose around its neck. Because Israel is effectively the only bulwark standing in the way of Iran's imperial aggression in the Middle East and its vision of making the whole Middle East its sphere of influence and imposing its weird, violent version of religion and will on the Middle East. So what is Iran trying to do? Iran is trying to contain Israel, to uh, bombard it with enemy forces, to build its own nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in order to leave the stage clear for it to expand across the Middle East and from there to terrorize uh, European targets as well. And we've seen the way that it has subverted European societies. And since the start of the war, Israeli intelligence have helped partner agencies around the world thwart Hamas sleeper cells and keep an eye on uh, Iran's attempts to uh, sow chaos and cause violence in the streets of the West as well. Well, you know, one of the arguments from the left in Europe and uh, America is that, uh, well, definitely in Sweden, where I'm from, is that Hamas has never committed a terrorist uh, attack outside of uh, disputed territories in Israel. Hamas is a terror organization that is committed to the violent destruction of the state of Israel and will stop at nothing. Just since the beginning of the war, Israel has helped foreign intelligence agencies thwart Hamas sleeper cells around the world that were planning attacks and may have pulled off those attacks if the intelligence had not been able to stop them. Um, Hamas is a profoundly anti-Semitic organization, as President Macron stated with his... Uh, very powerful remarks about how the October 7th attacks were the bloodiest anti-Semitic massacre since the Holocaust. This statement reaffirmed, by the way, by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who's been no great friend of Israel throughout this war, and by the leadership of the European Union as well, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, only a week after the October 7th massacre, saw the truth directly and said to its face, Hamas perpetrated these attacks because it targeted Jews as Jews and believes that they do not have a right to live 
in their country and in their land, and that is why they perpetrated these attacks. Yeah, but they didn't only kill Jews, they killed Israeli Arabs and, exactly. and kidnapped Bedouins and this, guest workers. This was a crime against humanity. It was motivated by a profound hatred of Israel as the Jewish state, but they abducted and tortured and mutilated Thai workers. In fact, the nationals of over 40 countries were abducted, murdered, or injured on October 7th. Not only Israelis, and among the 134 hostages who are still trapped in Gaza are a number of Thai citizens, I believe, and, and nationals of other countries. This was an attack, this was a crime against humanity. And Hamas also deliberately targeted Israeli Arabs as well during that attack. And by the way, when we see what is happening around the world uh, with sentiment amongst our Muslim communities, it's fascinating to see the change that has been happening inside Israel, where the level of identification with the country has gone up among the Israeli Arab community. October 7th has made them feel even more a part of this country than they were before. When the massacre happened, people were terrified that we would have a repeat of 2021. In 2021, there was a conflict with Gaza, but it wasn't just with Hamas. We saw this mass civil unrest, you could call them pogroms even, conducted by uh, local Arabs that joined in the fighting and firebombed homes and synagogues. And that didn't happen this time. And part of the reason it didn't happen this time is that Israel's Arabs looked around saw what we were all seeing with the atrocities of October 7th and said, we want to have nothing to do with this. This doesn't represent us. This is a threat to us as well because they also abducted and murdered uh, our people um, from inside the Arab community as well. Um, and that's a fascinating shift that we're seeing uh, within Israel as well. Positive um, shift. A very positive shift. Absolutely a positive shift. If something positive was to come out of this, I mean... Um Look, everything about this has been horrific. Everything around this has been horrific. But I hope that one of the effects will be to strengthen Israeli society and make it even more resilient than it was before. The defining feature, I think, of Israeli society has been an ongoing attempt to find normality in the most abnormal circumstances. People here are used to living with the most incredible pressures and to find ways to try to live and function in this impossible reality. The fact that after a year of intense political polarization in Israel, and it was horrific, people were speaking in the language of civil war, whether we should have a two-state solution inside Israel and just liberal Israel and religious Israel just go separate ways. It was awful. The fact that when October 7th happened, everyone dropped everything came together is really a mark of credit to Israeli society. The fact that within days, Dizengoff Square in central Tel Aviv became a central muster point for people to collect and distribute donations to give to soldiers and displaced families. People just took responsibility, didn't wait for the state to act for them. They took responsibility and they acted. It's a credit to Israeli society. And I hope that Because When you were one of the protesters, weren't you? You had a T-shirt yes. that said "Rebellion, Reform or Rebellion." Yes, I, I yes, think. yes. It's no, it's no secret. Before this massacre happened, I was involved in the protests against uh, against the government's judicial reform policies. But then, what happened happened, and when I was called to the flag and asked whether I would want to come on board as an official spokesman for the wartime emergency government, I said yes, obviously, because we understand that we are fighting for our lives and that only one thing matters right now total victory uh, over Hamas. And, and I hope that we escape this war after total victory much stronger. And you'll see this, by the way, with the reservists. 350,000 reservists right now who have been called up, ripped away from their ordinary lives. These are people who on October 7th had normal jobs or were planning vacations, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, you name it, who are now fighting shoulder to shoulder, with people from the other side of society that in ordinary life they would never have anything in common with or any interactions, 
but they're put in a tank and sent into Gaza together. And I hope that those human interactions will mean that we will leave this war on a much stronger footing as a society. Not that anything good will come from this awful war, but I think that Israeli society will, will emerge even more resilient uh, after this uh, baptism by fire. So if we look at the Iranian proxies, Hezbollah, Houthis, Iraqi, Shia militias, and uh, of course Hamas in Gaza, uh, why uh, why cut off the tail of the snake and not its head? Israel has warned that if Hezbollah draws us into a full-scale war, Iran will face consequences. It cannot activate its proxy forces against Israel and not face consequences. Now, what Israel may or may not be doing on a clandestine level, obviously, I can't get into it. I wouldn't want to speculate. Um, but our policy at the moment is to destroy Hamas in Gaza and to aggressively deter anyone else thinking of entering this war because we don't want the conflict to escalate. We don't want it to widen. We want to finish the job of bringing to justice the perpetrators of the October 7 massacre and not give others who want to escalate this conflict an opportunity to do so. But they need to know that if they force Israel into a full-scale war in which we will have our backs against the wall and we'll be fighting for our lives. Uh, we will fight. We will fight ferociously. Why do you think the Biden administration's reaction to Iranian aggression has been so weak? Do you think they suspect that Iran already has the bomb? Or Look, since the start of the war, America's support for Israel against Hamas has been truly remarkable. President Biden paid the first wartime visit of any U.S. president to Israel. The second visit by the president of the United States to any war zone not controlled by the United States since his own visit to Ukraine. They've backed us morally, materially, diplomatically. And the fact that they are still standing firm over four months since the massacre is a large reason for why... Um, much the rest of the Western world uh, is also essentially uh, backing Israel's goals. Well, Britain, for instance, and the US are now talking about unilaterally acknowledging a Palestinian state. When it comes to Hamas, they are still on board with Israel's goal of destroying Hamas. When you hear Britain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the European Parliament calling for a permanent ceasefire, after Hamas has laid down its arms and the hostages are returning. It is a roundabout way of saying, packaging it in a way that is politically palatable, that they subscribe to Israel's war goals of ending this war that Hamas started with the destruction of Hamas and the return of the hostages. Now, as for the long-term political horizon, personally, I've been surprised by the constant questioning in interviews about the two-state solution, two-state solution. Mm -hmm. Because for us, October 7th has changed everything. It's dramatically changed our understanding of the threat level of what is the worst-case scenario and a realistic-case scenario, let's be honest, following an Israeli territorial withdrawal. Israelis have been seared through experience. In 2000, we withdrew from Lebanon under international pressure, now controlled by an Iranian proxy with 150,000 rockets. Israel withdrew from the Palestinian cities in the West Bank as part of the Oslo Accords. They were used as a base for the suicide bombings of the 2000s, and we had to recapture those cities. In 2005, we withdrew from the Gaza Strip, gave it to the Palestinians, and in exchange received not only rocket fire at Israeli cities, but also the death squads of October 7th. So... Israelis think that world leaders are slightly mad when they come to Israel and say the response to the barbaric massacre that emanated from territory that Israel withdrew from should be to give the same people the mountains overlooking Tel Aviv, surrounding Jerusalem, that leave Israel nine miles wide at the narrowest, from which you can see boats on the sea with the naked eye, populated by people who overwhelmingly, according to every Palestinian poll, believe that the October 7 massacre was justified, is the definition of insanity. It is to give a reward to terrorism. 
It is also to misdiagnose the problem. The conflict exists because of the persistent Palestinian refusal to accept a Jewish state in any borders whatsoever in the land between the river and the sea. And that's why they chant from the river to the sea. And that's why all their supporters around the West are chanted from the river to the sea. They're calling for the elimination of the state of Israel. Now, if your response to those demands is to come to Israelis and say, listen, we know that on multiple occasions in history, every time you have withdrawn from territory, it has exploded in your faces in ways far more barbaric and violent than you could have imagined. But we need you to take this risk again. Israelis say, like, we've learned from experience. We've learned from experience that this is a real threat to our lives because we are the ones who have skin in the game. And if, if, if it backfires, we are the ones who are going to have to deal with it. And not only are we then going to have to reclaim territory and fight a war emanating from territory that we withdrew from, but the worst thing of all, we know we're not going to have your support. We know we're not going to have your support when we fight to defend ourselves against an invasion from territory that you told us to withdraw from. Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2005, expected, Israelis genuinely expected, that the first rocket that would fall in Israel from Gaza, the international community would support us in fighting against that threat because we withdrew from territory. You asked us to do that and therefore, obviously, we have international legitimacy to defend ourselves against attacks emanating from that territory. And it didn't happen. Every time there was an attack, there was pressure on Israel to stop with a stalemate, with a stalemate, with a stalemate, with a stalemate, until it has grown to monstrous proportions of the death squads that incinerated families alive and committed mass acts of rape on October 7th. So Israelis think that suddenly the timing of saying the response to the October 7 massacre should be to give the Palestinians more territory is madness. But it has also dramatically changed our assessment of what the threat is and what the worst case scenario is. It's not just that if we withdraw from the West Bank, it could be used as a base for rocket attacks against Israel, like every other territory Israel has withdrawn from. Rocket attacks that would give you 20 seconds to run for shelter in Tel Aviv, and even less in Jerusalem. It's the threat of similar armed invasions, like we saw on October 7th, of death squads with a single mission. A mission they perpetrated by drugging themselves to the eyeballs to make it possible to commit such barbaric atrocities. Of murdering as many people as possible, as brutally as possible, it, it confronted us with the horrific reality of what we are up against. Uh, I have two more questions. Uh, first, when I brought up the U.S. weak response to Iranian aggression, I wasn't uh, talking about Iranian aggression against Israel. I was talking about Iranian aggression against the U.S. because they have been attacking U.S. bases all over the Middle East as well, with uh, um, casualties as a consequence. Uh, so I was wondering uh, what you thought about America's response to that, from its own point of view, so to speak. I understand the United States will have its own complicated set of considerations to take into account. It is also clearly trying to contain the Iranian problem. It does not want to see an escalation, but it's going to have to make its own decisions about how it confronts the Iranian threat. It's no secret that there have been profound policy disagreements between Israel and the United States about how to deal with the Iranian nuclear threat and the threat of Iran acquiring uh, weapons of mass destruction. And we would certainly expect the international community to take a much more assertive stance against Iran to make sure that it can never acquire the weapons um, with which to dangle a nuclear sword of Damocles over Israel and, God forbid, actually try to use those weapons one day. Well, I think it probably would, and I wouldn't get my hopes up about the international community. Well, uh, history teaches us that when people say they want to kill the Jews, you should probably take them seriously. And Israel has been very clear, we will not allow any enemy regime to acquire the weapons with which to eliminate our country as they are threatening to do. That's why Israel is the only country in the history of the world that has destroyed a nuclear reactor, not once, but twice, in 
the early 1980s, when Menachem Begin's government sent in planes to destroy Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactor. It was condemned internationally, of course, and I think years later, people say it's a damn good thing the Israelis destroyed Saddam Hussein's WMD program. And then again in 2008, nine was it, when Israel destroyed uh, Bashar al-Assad's nuclear reactor, a nuclear reactor he had built in secret with the North Koreans that the Americans discovered only thanks to Israeli intelligence that brought it to their attention. Um, we cannot allow enemy regimes to acquire the weapons uh, with which they could pose an existential threat to our country. And if it is genuinely existential, that is why Israel's policy has always been, we will do whatever it takes to stop that, because ultimately it is our lives on the line. So what will happen the day after you win your war against Hamas? The day after victory over Hamas, um, we're going to have a new reality in Gaza. And it's a new reality that I hope will create opportunities that people will latch onto. There will be an opportunity for reconstruction in Gaza in a way that ensures that the concrete goes to people's houses this time and not to the tunnels underneath their houses. But there needs to be de-radicalization. The Prime Minister has set out his 3D vision for peace. Destroy Hamas, demilitarize Gaza, de-radicalize Palestinian society. We cannot have another generation of Palestinian children. Being... How do you do that? How do you de-radicalize a population of millions that have for 18 years been indoctrinated in some sort of Nazi Islamist ideology? It, so it's a much deeper problem than that. It's not 18 years, it's much longer because even Hamas uses the Palestinian Authority curriculum in its schools, the same curriculum taught by the UN, by UNRWA, um, in those so-called refugee camps that have always acted as breeding grounds for violent extremism against Israel. De-radicalization can be done. If it could be done in Nazi Germany, I have hope for Hamas Gaza. If it could be done in the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia, which has made huge strides in recent years to promote a different version of Islam. But they're Wahhabi, they're not jihadi. Correct, correct, correct. But de-radicalization can be done. But here's the challenge. Destroying uh, the Hamas military machine in Gaza, on us. Demilitarizing Gaza, on us. De-radicalizing Palestinian society, that is going to require the involvement of the international community. All the countries that have been funding UNRWA, the same UNRWA which had employees that took part in the massacre, 12% of whose employees are Hamas or Islamic Jihad um, activists, operatives. The same UNRWA whose headquarters sat above a Hamas server farm in a bunker 20 meters underground that was leaching its electricity and said nothing. The same UNRWA that has been indoctrinating Palestinian children for decades. We need our Western allies to understand the damage that has been done with their tax dollars, their tax pounds, their tax euros, how instead of fostering an education for peace, they have been exacerbating the conflict. There is a difference between doing things that feel good and doing things that do good. And giving money to an organization that says it's helping refugees feels good. It's done a tremendous amount of damage by entrenching and aggravating this conflict. And that is why we are calling for UNRWA to be replaced. It's humanitarian functions. It's education functions. We need allies that want to help the Palestinian people to understand how much damage they have done to the Palestinian people. And the knowledge of what is in UNRWA's curriculum and, and the way that they glorify violence and jihad, this is known. All this is known to Western countries. The question isn't how many UNRWA staff took part in the October 7 massacre. It's how many UNRWA graduates, how many UNRWA alumni took part in the massacre. And by a rough calculation, if UNRWA provides an education for 70% of Gazans, 70% of the 3,000 terrorists who took part in October 7th, it stands to reason, came out through the UNRWA education system. Yes, that is quite Paid, for, paid for with European taxes. Um, which is horrific. So we are trying to shake the world by the shoulders. 
and explain the depth of the problem that has emerged under their noses using their funding, abusing the best of intentions to try to genuinely do good, but has done tremendous harm. And if the world takes seriously the task of de-radicalization, it can be done. They just need to tell the Palestinians some tough truths. 1948 is over. The state of Israel is here to stay. People who are Palestinians living in what they call Palestine, under a Palestinian government, are not refugees. They do not have a right to resettle in Tel Aviv. Gaza is their home. And their best hope is to build a prosperous reality next to Israel instead of thinking that one day they will violently destroy it. Uh, as the presence of an agency that nearly 80 years after the 48 war still calls them refugees, um, tells them by indulging their dream that this conflict is going to end, not with a prosperous reality in Gaza, but with the ultimate elimination of the state of Israel. Thank you so much, Mr. Levy. It's been a pleasure. I hope that was interesting. No doubt will provide a slightly different perspective uh, for your uh, listeners and viewers from the ordinary perspective and lens provided uh, within the European media. And I hope that it will provide them uh, food for thought about how we got here, where we go next. I hope so too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism with this episode's guest, Mr. Elon Levy. You can find Elon on The X and Instagram, as well as in his new podcast, State of a Nation. If you are a patron of Deconstructive Criticism, you can watch all the interviews recorded so far on my Patreon, patreon.com slash They will be published to the general public in the coming weeks, but if you can't wait for them to come out, I suggest becoming a patron. I am Aaron Flam. Until next, have a good unit of time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.